Would you turn with me this morning as we are back in the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew chapter 22. We will be reading verses 34 through 40. You can find that reading if you're in the Pew Bible on page 828. As we continue in our series through Matthew, we now come to yet another famous or infamous, depending on who you are, a passage of dispute between Jesus uh, and the religious leaders of his day. Uh, you'll recall this is uh, the last week of his life. Matthew has sort of zoomed in on that. Uh, and today we take up uh, the third dispute uh, in this series. And so friends, would you turn your attention now with me to Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 34. Beloved friends, hear now the living and active word of God. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Indeed, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let us go to him in prayer, that he would nourish us by it this day. Our gracious and glorious Father in heaven, we ask now as we come to your holy word, that you would grant us particular understanding and a particular view of Christ by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. My right, friends, there's a few things that I think are uh, not disputed among us. The chief among them, of course, is that baseball is the greatest sport mankind has ever known. <laughs> now, before you laugh and mock me, okay, I'm going to prove it to you. Okay, Think about all the sports you know. How many of them do you reference in a day? Probably baseball. Maybe football. Some of you maybe soccer, but that's kind of weird. At least here in America. Right? The most idiomatic phrases in English of any sport belongs to baseball. We love baseball because it's the best sport. Think about it. Step up to the plate. I say that all the time. Hey, it's it's time to go into action. It's time to do what you're supposed to do. It's time to step up to the plate. Right? Well, you don't need to swing for the fences. Hey, you don't have to hit a home run every time. You don't need to give it your all. Sometimes adequate will do, right? What a curve. Somebody says something unexpected to you and you might label it a curveball. But perhaps most famously, it's three strikes and you're out, right? Three strikes and you're out. As I said earlier, we are marching through Jesus' last week of earthly ministry. And in the two previous passages, we've seen strike one and strike two. Strike one was uh, the Pharisees plotting how to entangle Jesus, bring him a question about taxes, thinking they can trip him up over his own words and, and create enemies for Christ in the crowd. But they swing and miss. Strike two, the Sadducees last week come and try and Show him that his belief and his doctrine of the resurrection is absurd. What if a a woman's husband dies and she marries the brother, and he dies and marries the next brother, and so on down to the seventh brother in heaven? In the resurrection, 
whose husband is hers. Once again, they swing and they miss. Jesus not only evades them, but rebukes them in doing so. And today we see strike three. We see the third and final question of the religious leaders to Jesus in the last week of his life. Next week we'll see instead, Jesus asks them a question. And would you believe me if I tell you he hit a home run? But today we see the end of disputes. Christ goes and finally and with authority begins to show them that your squabbling over the law is meaningless because you don't understand it. You do this to puff yourselves up, to, to, to ensure your own authority and your own leadership, but in doing so, you miss the point. And so this morning we see that Jesus is done with squabbling. He's done with the, the, the nitpicking and, and the dragging and the, and the arguing and, and the philosophy. Instead, he dismisses all that by answering the Pharisee's question according to a greater principle than law. He answers according to the principle of love. And in order to understand this, I think we need to understand three things. We need to understand first a summary. We need to understand the law as summary. We need to understand the summary of what Jesus is going through in the historical context here. And then, and only then, can we really get to the specifics of the command. And then finally, we can examine our service in light of it. So let's start with a summary. You guys remember uh, Spark Notes from when you were in school? The deadline came to finish the book, and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I just read the first page the other day. I'm going to go to Spark Notes. I'm going to get a plot summary. I'm going to go get a summary so that when the teacher calls on me, I can say, oh, yeah. Well, today, in today's climate, you don't even need Spark Notes. You just ask Chat GPT. Right? You've got AI to write your paper for you, apparently. Well, written law in the Bible functions as sort of a Spark Notes. It's a summary. This is how law is written in the Bible. Right? And we see that as we examine the law, right? Even the law that Jesus gives us, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul is a summary of more specific laws. Take your bulletin. Look at our scripture reading from earlier. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. What are those? but ways to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Then Jesus follows that up with another summary. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Once again, take your bulletin. Honor your father and mother. You shall not kill, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, or covet. What are these? More specific ways in order to love our neighbor as ourself. This is how the law functions. If you go into the Westminster Larger Catechism, a, a catechism which is a, a doctrinal standard of the PCA, you'll notice that a bunch of questions, as we've been noticing in the shorter catechism in our evening service, ask these questions. What is the commandment? 
What are the duties required in that commandment? And what sins are forbidden in that commandment? And interestingly, they go far deeper than you ever thought possible. Showing, once again, that even the Ten Commandments themselves are summaries. Now, you can imagine how this could be misused. You can imagine how such depth and such richness in the law can sort of become an opportunity for pontification. For not doing, but speaking and arguing and debating. And this is precisely where we find Jesus. Jesus is in the temple, he is doing teaching, and he finds himself wrapped up in the rabbinic debates of his day. This is a common question other rabbis have pontificated about for centuries before Jesus and will for centuries after. There are, according to their count, at least 613 commandments in the first five books of the Bible. Probably behooves us to try and understand, well, which one's... The most important of those. How can we rank these? Which is the most vital? And this is what rabbis would do. They would sit and they would debate the meaning. And they would try and pick one of the 613. And they would go back and forth. What about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? And so, knowing that this is a big question that rabbis have argued about and struggled with, the the lawyer in our passage comes again with a question to test Jesus, to try and get Jesus to stumble. Not that Jesus would be wrong necessarily, but that Jesus would pick a side. And that some rabbis would like his answer, and other rabbis wouldn't. Thus, changing the opinion of the people of Jesus and getting a foothold so that they can come and attack Christ. Indeed, this is sort of reminiscent of that great philosophical question of the medieval era, isn't it? What's the greatest commandment of the law is almost like asking, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Well, yeah, it it might be useful to know that, I guess. But God gave all of the law, didn't He? And He expects obedience not just to the greatest, and not just to the second, but all of it. And so, ultimately, we see that it is a bad question to ask who, what is the most important. Nevertheless, in his mercy and in his grace and in his patience, Jesus gives an answer. And his answer cuts through by summarizing the entire law in his answer of love. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. But that brings a question to mind. If you're the lawyer in this context, there's an immediate follow-up that I can't believe he missed, right? Jesus, how do you command someone to love you? How do you do that? You can't just walk up to somebody on the side of the street and say, Hey, my name's Jim. I command you to love me. That doesn't work, does it? Indeed, even my own daughter. I'll tell her I love her. And you know what she does? She turns around and walks away. So what do I have to do? Shout after her. Charlotte, say I love you. So what does she do? She turns around. She says, love you. Does she mean it? I hope so. I'd like to think so. But she's doing it because I told her to say it. Is that genuine love? Maybe. Maybe not. You see the oddity of commanding love 
of demanding love, we need to reverse our understanding of the law to really begin to grasp what Jesus is trying to say. We need to not believe the Pharisees' view of the law that's presented to us by the lawyer. And instead, we need to see that Jesus' answer is flipping things and revealing things, particularly about the law. And it's this principle, that love must precede the law. Love must precede the law. One commentator, Leon Morris, he he says it this way about Jesus' answer. In one stroke, Jesus did away with any understanding of the service of God that sees it as concerned with the acquiring of merit or with an emphasis on liturgical or worship concerns. What matters to God can be summed up in one word. Love. Love. And once we understand that, once we believe that, we see then that the commands and the law of God are only necessary. Why? Because we don't love. I have to tell my daughter to say, love you, to teach her that's what you respond with. The only reason I do it is because she doesn't say it. So too does the law function in this particular way. Because if we start with love, if we have a genuine and deep love and affection for God, what does that do to the law? It makes it easy. It makes it simple. Indeed, it makes it moot on some level. Not that it's not important, but it it becomes the chief desire of our hearts to do what the God we love says. And so we must not begin with the question, what's the most important law? We must instead begin with love. Because it is both because God loves us that he gives us the law, and because we do not love him that we need it. So we cannot and we must not approach the law as the Pharisees did nitpicking and, and, and asking questions and trying to be more philosophical than understanding. We mustn't approach the Ten Commandments and, and have disputes among ourselves. Well, what is work when it comes to the Sabbath? What does it mean to, to be a graven image? Can that mean one thing for you and one thing for me? If we've reached that point, friends, we have started in the wrong place and we will not end up in a good one. Instead, we must approach the law from the perspective of love. Because we cannot keep track of all 613 ordinances and commandments and each and every way in which we violate them. It is impossible. And that is the point. The law's intent was never to produce love. It was intended to be the expression of our love for God. And so if you focus on love, you will obey the law. If you focus on love of God and love of neighbor, you will obey the law. Indeed, that's how Paul says it in Romans 13. He says, the fulfillment of the law is to love your neighbor as yourself. 
You want to fulfill the law. You want to be a better, more moral and upright person. You want to express the righteousness of God, my friends. It is very simple. You must love. You must love. And yet, in sort of doing this and in in reversing this and in upending this, Jesus does actually answer the question. So we need to look at the specifics. And Christ's answer immediately begins with a with a citation. This is what Jesus loves to do, right? He did it in the uh, all throughout his ministry. He did it in his temptation to Satan, right? Jesus loves the scriptures because the scriptures reveal who God is. And in Deuteronomy 6, 5, we read the same words. The law that Jesus has chosen to answer the question. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. It's a familiar law. It's a part of what the the Jews call the Shema, which is the the beginning word uh, there in Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear. Hear, O Israel. Hear. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. Indeed, not only would this have been familiar, and not only would this have been on their lips, they recited this at least twice a day. And in fact, many of them followed another law that came right after this and wrote that phrase from Deuteronomy on their doorposts such as they would see it when they walked in and out of their own home. And in fact, many of them, many of the priests wore these things called phylacteries, which are these little leather boxes that they band around their head. And in that box, on them, the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. So they knew this. They knew it intimately. They knew its importance. And Jesus uses that importance to show a more deep and specific meaning. What is that meaning? Well, it's not rocket science. What does it say? You shall love the Lord your God with every aspect and fiber of your being to the deepest, most Mote part of your heart and soul, it must belong 100% in every way, at every moment of every day to God. There is nothing and no one more important than Him. And where do our minds immediately go? We hear that, and what do we think? Some of us may think, well, I violated that in this way the other day, and I'm violating that right now in that way. Some of other of us might be thinking, well, that seems impossible. That seems not only impossible, it seems entirely too difficult. How could we do that? Don't go there. Don't go beyond the words of Jesus yet. Stay there. Right? Don't become the, the legalist, the Pharisee, who, who seeks to use their works to earn God's favor by asking what is the greatest law so I can keep it and be right with God. Don't go there. And dwell on the fact that Christ tells us that the Lord's chief desire from you is not action. It's not work. 
It's not obedience to each and every little detail. The chief commandment of God is love. That you would love Him in every aspect of who you are. What does that do to your understanding of the law? Of yourself? Indeed, of God. Right? We all know that famous verse. The only reason we can love God is why? Because He first loved us. And so it's not as though God is commanding when he, in, in, in desiring our love and affection and obsession and worship. It's not as though God hasn't done something to achieve it. It's not as though God has left you of your own devices and your own heart and your own sin and rebellion and filth and said, I don't know how you're going to do it, but figure it out. No, God is so better, so much better than that. He is so much more loving than that. He commands something that is possible because His love produces our love for Him. And so when we start with His love, when we begin the entire concept of our relationship with God on the fact that God loves us, this changes our view of the entire relationship. From law to love. This is not us merely uh, uh, and barely sort of submitting to some higher authority who can kill us. That's certainly true. But it's not just that. He's not merely a king who demands and, and, and takes and takes and takes from you. He is a God who loves you. Who loves you first. Who loves you when you don't love Him. And his chief desire is that you would return that to him. So again, the law is not chiefly, chiefly about action, about deeds, about earning, about merit. But it is chiefly about love. Look again at the words Jesus uses You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. All three of these things are internal aspects of who we are. And if we don't start there, we can't even begin to examine what we do with our hands and what we say with our mouths. It's useless to even go there if at first we don't have a sincere affection to a holy and reverent and humble God who calls us to love Him in that precise way. A love that listens to Him and adores Him. And so we need to understand, regardless of what our hands do, regardless of what our mouth says, God will not settle for anything less than all of who you are in here. God will not settle for anything less because He refuses to be some sort of cute accessory or stuffed animal that we drag along and that we desire to use in the moments we need Him. But cast Him aside 
when we've outgrown Him. We must love God, not because He commands it, but because He deserves it for who He is and what He's done. And so He and He alone ought to be the singular obsession of your life. Your chief joy. The one in whom you find no lack and no error and no fault. He ought to be the first thing you consider as you rise and go about your day. And he ought to be the last thing you think about as you drift off to the sleep he has blessed you with. Indeed, Paul tells us that we ought to pray without ceasing. God ought to be so present in our hearts, our minds, and our souls, that he is with us at every moment of the day, both in our consciousness and our thoughts. But we need to guard ourselves against a few errors that are plaguing the church and have for uh, ever, since the garden at least. We must guard against, uh, first, the error of viewing the law as anything in itself to satisfy God. God desires love, not external work. And so I want you to recall from a few passages ago the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. You remember his question. He came to Jesus and he said, What must I do to earn, to merit To have eternal life. What must I do? And in the end, Jesus shows him that his problem was not of his actions, but of his heart. He, like us, like many of us, want more law. We want more to-do lists. We want more clarity. God, if you would just tell me exactly what decision to make every time, I wouldn't ever make a mistake. What about those 613 commandments He did give us? It's not true. And so, if we only want more law, if we only desire more to-do lists, that only leaves us far away from Christ and sad as the rich young ruler. Instead, we ought to love God. We ought to cherish Him. And we ought to permit Him and place Him in the place of our deepest and most, our highest desire. We ought to want Him more than anything and more than anyone else. And not just more than, but not even close to anything and anyone else. Again, in its highest form, the law depends on love. It cannot produce it. Doing the law will not achieve the love of God because He loved us first. That is why we love. The second error we need to avoid, quite simply, is that believing that the sincerity with which I do certain actions is enough to satisfy God. That a a sincerity of affection, and because I really mean it to praise Him, that what I do is satisfactory. Just imagine with me, uh, um, one day my wife tells me, hey, you know, I really don't like fish. 
And I say, okay, cool. And a couple of years later, for our anniversary, I'm thinking to myself, man, I really want to make her a meal. I, I saw a really good salmon recipe the other day. Yeah, she doesn't like fish, but she'll eat it because she loves me. And because she knows that I'm doing it because I love her. What's the look on her face when I slide the salmon across the table? I really mean it, babe. Honey, I made this for you sincerely and genuinely. It is your dinner and I made it out of love. Does that mean she's going to enjoy it? No. In fact, we might have a fight that night. Because it's not actually love. A sincere affection of God is not enough. Because if we take that sincere affection and we refuse to do what God says, then we're not actually loving Him. We're not listening to Him. So if we do the things that God told us not to do, or we don't do the things He told us to do, but we do so with sincerity, it's not actually loving God. It's not actually expressing our love. Ultimately, it's being selfish and insincere and not genuine. And so, friends, we need to understand, we need to believe, we, we need to see that we cannot earn God's love with works. But neither can we express our love for God without them. I want to be very clear on what I mean by that. We cannot earn God's love with our works, but we cannot express that love without them. How do we express our love? Christ tells us in John 14, by doing His commandments. But even in that, know that love came first. Both God's love to you and your love for God. And that love produces good works in your life. And that brings us to Christ's added commandment, which takes us to our service in light of these commands. Christ answered the question, but then he goes further and he adds another law from Leviticus 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Christ says that the second law is like it or like the first for a few different reasons. In terms of its level of importance, And because the two are connected by that beautiful, incredible word of love. And so often, the way we talk about these two commandments is the first greatest commandment, the chief, the best, the one up top, is to love the Lord your God with all of who you are. And then, subsequent or under that is a second one that's kind of like it. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is putting both of these commandments on the same level. And he's saying you cannot have one and not the other. You cannot love God and hate your neighbor. You cannot love your neighbor truly without loving God. And so we need to understand and see that the two are not one and two, but A and B. Two aspects to the same thing, to the love that God desires to see in us. Again, Leon Morris is helpful when he says that wholehearted love for God means coming in some measure to see other people as God sees them. 
wholehearted love for God means, in some measure, viewing others the way that God views them. And how does God view others? He loves them. He causes rain to come for the just and the unjust. And He tells us, why did Christ come? For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, that whosoever should believe in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Christ came out of a love for the world, a love from the Father and a love expressed by the Son. And so, we need to love others as ourself. And this is our service to God in this life. Our love of God becomes, as it were, our love for our neighbor. Now, Jesus uses this phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's not to say, all right, y'all, you really need to love yourself first. I need to focus on me first. Right? That's not at all what Jesus is saying. It's not an excuse to be selfish. He's commanding your love for your neighbor to be as you desire love. As you think about your wants and your needs, when you're somewhere doing something and you think, man, it would be really nice if somebody did that thing for me. It would be really nice if somebody passed the salt on the other end of the table without me having to ask for it. Right? When we consider legitimate wants and needs in our life and how we want others to meet those, Christ calls us first to consider others having the same wants and needs in their life and us addressing them. Let me show you. In the life of Christ. Friends, are you too tired to serve and love your neighbors? So was Jesus when they woke Him up and asked Him, pleaded with Him to calm the storm. And yet He did it. Are you hungry? Or as the kids say, are you hangry? I get hangry a lot. Christ was too. And yet, for you, He remained steadfast to the law of God and refused to turn the stone into bread. Are you thirsty? Christ was too. With the woman at the well. And instead, preaching the gospel and ministering to her Proclaiming who he was was more important and more loving than receiving water from her bucket. And so he did. God commands our love for him. But notice that when Christ came to the world, when God became flesh, what did he do? He did not demand, but he gave love. And he gave it freely and deeply and richly. This tells us how we ought to treat others. But more importantly than that, it tells us how we treat others is how we treat Christ. It's how we view Christ and how we love God. John tells us in 1 John 4 that he who says that he loves God but hates his brother is a liar. As we approach our neighbors as ourselves, we need to understand that loving them is loving God. And by loving God with all of whom we are is loving them. 
And as we struggle to do these things, as we struggle to love, we need to rely on the one who's speaking. We need to rely upon Christ. And we need to trust in His love. His love for the Father and His love for us. So how do you approach Him? Is it through the law? Is it through your actions? Is it through squabbling over its meaning? Trying to find even the most remotest, most strict ordinance and trying to follow that? Are you justifying yourself by how much you serve? How much you do? How much of yourself you give? Maybe that's not you. Maybe that's not you. Maybe instead you're beating yourself up. And you're thinking to yourself, I'll never be good enough. I didn't even know there were 613 laws, much less half of them. I can't know that. I can't possibly do that. Why try? Friends, we must dissuade ourselves of both of these things. As we look and rely upon Christ. And instead approach the God who loves us in that same love in response to Him. Because when He becomes your most deepest desire and affection, the rest will follow. Because He is with you. He loves you. And He is making you more like His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, do not use this law to beat us down. Nor indeed, Father, should it puff us up. But rather, use it to do such a good work in our hearts as to produce love. Because of the love with which Christ came. And indeed, that love we still experience to this day by the presence and power of the Spirit. Lord, give us not only more motivation, but give us deeper affection. Give us a deeper love by reading your scriptures, by praying to you more often. Lord, would we become more and more like Christ in this chief way by becoming more loving to you and to our neighbors. Do this good work in us and through us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.